you, but it gets my attention when two brothers, Brother Gustavo and Brother Dan, literally stand up at the same time to share with us the same scripture that they both read this morning from Malachi. Amen. About bringing the full sacrifice into the temple. As I recall, that passage is talking about uh, sacrifice, and he says, you know, try offering a blemished ram to your governor. Is he going to accept it? You know, and, and the Lord says, am I not a great king? Am I not worthy of the honor of a whole unblemished sacrifice? And that's where he says, test me in this and see. Test me in this. I, I don't recall offhand any other place in the scriptures where the Lord invites us to test him. But he says, test me in this and see. If you'll bring the whole offering, the whole sacrifice into my temple, into the place that I have designated, at the time I have designated, and see if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out such a blessing upon you that you cannot contain it. There is a promise for those who are available to God, for those who are not inured to his call, who can at least just hear the voice of God speaking to us about that next step that's right in front of us today. What is the whole sacrifice this morning? Amen. We, we, we want to say, okay, well, I've got to, we want to think up something big to give to God. But, but the most sacrificial thing we can do is to simply obey him and what he is asking of us to give. Whether we deem it a small thing, like Naaman did when the Lord told him, go dip in the Jordan, why should I do that? That doesn't make any sense to me. That's not going to fix my problems. That's not going to meet my need. I can't believe God is disappointing me after I've given all this and come all this way to try to find answers to my needs. I can't believe that such a inane and uh, humbling and silly solution is being offered to me. But he was able to hear the word of God coming to him from his servant to say, if he'd asked you to do something that you thought was great, would you have done it? Well, then how come you can't do what God says is the answer? He was able to hear that and go and do it, not once, not twice, seven times. He did all of what the Lord told him to do and received above and beyond what he could have asked or imagined. Amen. It totally changed his attitude, didn't it? He went from somebody who was mad at God in a rage and feeling sorry for himself into somebody who was so full of gratitude. He was like, can I take some of the dirt home? I mean, whatever it is, I want to do anything I can to live my life for the God who has brought such grace and healing to me. The change would have never happened if he hadn't have been willing to listen to simple instructions coming to him from somebody that wasn't even his superior. It was, in fact, his servant. We want to pick who we listen to. We want to pick where we listen or when we listen or what we listen to. But the real question is, do we have an ear for God? Or does some veil lie over our hearts where we he speaks, but we don't know it? He's doing amazing things. For two weeks, he's done incredible things, but we've forgotten about them already. We didn't notice when they happened. I didn't read the passage in Malachi before the meeting, but I'll read you a couple that I did write down along the same lines. Philippians 4 and 18, Paul is writing to them, and he says... Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And I, I, I read this also uh, in Ephesians 5. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. 
That was a full sacrifice, and it was sweet in the nostrils of God. And I had read some parallel passages, uh, you know, to these where instruction was given in the Old Testament about sacrifice. And what was emphasized was the wholeness of it. That if you'll sacrifice the whole ram, it says in Exodus, I believe it was, I didn't write them down, then this will produce a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Twice it says the same thing there, that if it's a whole sacrifice, it has the right smell. And I was thinking about that because recently it's, it, it struck me about this virus that's been going around. Uh, have you all heard about this virus? <laughs> I think most of us haven't gone a day without talking about it. I'd hate to let you down and not talk about it again today. But the, you know, the u- most unique characteristic of it is that people lose their sense of smell and their sense of taste. And it's gotten us to, we've had a few conversations in my family about, about the marvel of smell and the sense of smell and, and the sense of taste. And um, the interesting thing about it is that, and one of the dangerous things about it is that many people uh, don't realize that they've lost their sense of smell. It's not the first sense that we appeal to to guide us in our everyday actions, is it? We rely upon our sight. We rely upon our hearing. And other senses are they're usually more acute to us than smelling. I mean, how many of you, until this minute, have thought about what it smells like in here this morning? You don't even think about it until something salient or significant comes across your, is it orifactory glands? Is that the right word? Even though there are things to smell all the time, you kind of don't think about it much until something matters to you. You're in your house and you smell something burning and you say, uh-oh, you know, this, this means we've got a problem. We better, we better find this. This smell means something to me. Or you're hungry and you smell dinner and you say, oh, this, this means something to me, <laughs> you know. But the sense of smell is an incredible thing. Can you imagine if you were the only person in the world who could smell? Right? If, if God had not given that capacity to anybody else, then you were born with this incredible gift. You know, and you would be sitting in the living room out of sight of the kitchen with a, a whole group of people, and you would say, hmm, I think we're having lasagna for dinner. And everybody would look at you and say, how do you know that? Well, I can smell it. What does that mean? You know, and, and, and here comes the lasagna. People would look at you like you were a prophet. No? I mean, how did, how did you know that? And the same thing could be true with negative things. You could be the one smelling fire and saying, everybody needs to get out of this building right now. I smell something burning. People would be like, you're crazy, man. And then you would leave, and then the flames would start, and they would say, man, we should have listened. Somehow he knew about something that was going on that we missed. So there's really something incredible about it, that we have this capacity to detect things that eyes have not seen and ears have not heard. And yet there's this virus going around that takes away that variability from people, and yet we don't even notice when it's gone. Can I tell on you, Brother Dan, for a minute? He, he was telling me, he, he called me a few weeks ago, and he said, you know, the strangest thing happened to me. I was at a, a customer's house, and he deals with septic tanks and so forth, and he said, this guy, this guy was telling me, I know I've got a problem because, I, I mean, I'm smelling septic bad. And he said, I was thinking to myself, this guy's a little, um, I don't remember the word you used, but it's a little oversensitive. I mean, maybe I can smell a little bit of septic, but... I don't think we've really got a problem here. I think this guy is just kind of, he's paranoid. And then Brother Dan got home, and I don't remember what it was, but there were some other things, and he started, he started thinking about it. Well, oh, there is this thing going around called COVID-19 where you can't smell anything, and he started thinking about it, and, and then remembering back that, oh, yeah, you know what? I, now that I think about it, I didn't smell this. And so many people say that. Have you heard those stories? So many people say, well, now that I think about it, 
I realized that I couldn't smell the spices in the kitchen or I didn't taste my toothpaste when I brushed my teeth. But it goes by us unless it, it some, suddenly becomes important and, and relevant. And, of course, what's been going over in my heart and mind is connected to how we can be the sons of the kingdom and not even know what's happening. That we could, we could simply grow numb to the sensitivities in the spirit that God would give to us. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. One sister told us about how when her, her sense of smell and taste started to come back, it was all messed up. Multiple people have had that experience. Things that were supposed to taste good tasted like gasoline, she told us. Which is terrible, I suppose. It would be better not to taste it at all than to have it, your food taste like gasoline. But here he's describing one fragrance that to one set of people smells like life, leading to life. And to another set of people, smells like death, leading to death. What is this smell? What is this fragrance of Christ? If, well, if, from the passages I already quoted, if we're to walk in love and give ourselves just as Christ gave himself for us, then this sweet-smelling aroma is the smell of sacrifice. Amen. It's the smell of the whole offering of our life that we have become a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our spiritual act of worship. So there is a sacrifice that pleases God and sends out an aroma to those that have a nose to smell, to those that have an ear to hear the shepherd's voice, to those who've had their eyes opened. Amen. Amen. That passage Brother Dan quotes is one of the troubling ones about the church in Laodicea, right? Where he says, you say to yourself, you claim to see, I'm paraphrasing, you're rich, you're increased with goods, you don't have need of anything. But he said, you do not know that you are wretched, poor, blind, naked, and miserable. But you should come to God if you would turn and repent, he says. Then I would give you salve, so that you would see. I would clothe you. Thank you, Jesus. Your needs that you didn't even know you had would be met. And I think it's the devil's plan in these days to numb us. Do you remember a meeting we had, I think it was back in September, where we talked about the strategy of our enemy in these days. If you recall, we, we talked about passages where Jesus is speaking about the times of the end. And he talks about how there will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be plagues. There will be earthquakes. Ethnos will rise against ethnos. That means ethnic group, racial groups, against racial groups or whatever. And he says... And all these things are the beginnings. But where that whole passage leads, if you remember, he takes it right down to first it's plagues, first it's famines, pestilences, wars, these cataclysmic events that are affecting all people. And he says that it brings people to the place where a man's enemies will be those of his own house where brother will betray brother, where relationships are going to break down. And the end of all this is that the love of most is going to wax cold. The feeling is going to be gone. But he who endures to the end, the same shall be saved. Endures in what? He whose love endures. His love endures forever. 
but our capacity to see it, to feel it, to know it, to share it, to express it, to diffuse that fragrance can be lost. It can grow cold. Love is what's going to be lost. I think we also quoted in that same meeting from Paul's admonition to Timothy that in the last days, perilous times will come. It's not that no one will have any love. What's perilous is that men will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Disobedient. Unthankful. Lacking the natural affection that a child should have towards its parent. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power therein. What is the power of God if it isn't love? God is love. It's the spirit of love that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the most powerful force in the universe. Denying the power thereof and diverting it to self. Amen. This is what's so dangerous about the times. Amen. And I I think one of the principal weapons that the enemy wants to use against us is to simply cause us to cease to feel, to lose our sensitivity, to lose our awareness, both of the good and of the bad. When the Lord has prepared a feast for us and it's cooking in the kitchen, we don't have the faintest idea. We're not drawn to it. We're not pulled toward it because we've lost it. We've been infected with some kind of virus. When something's dead and rotten, putrefying, our own limbs maybe are gangrenous and rotting, we don't know it because we didn't notice that anything smelled bad. We can eat poison without raising that rotten meat to our mouth and going, whoa. Brother Zafir always says, the Lord places your nose right above your mouth for a reason. (laughs) So that you'll catch things before they go in there if they're not supposed to be in there. But if you can't smell it, you can't taste it, how do you know if what you're eating is garbage or rotten or poisonous? There was a study that came out here a week or two ago that I heard about, and they said that, curiously, nobody knows why, but... 80% of people who get the coronavirus in a very mild form lose their sense of smell and taste. But for those who get it in a a moderate or severe form, only like 3 to 5%, something like that, of those people lose their sense of taste and smell. To me, one of the more dangerous things about this virus is that it's mild enough in certain forms that people dismiss it. You know, and say, what's the big deal? And then infect other people with it and they die from it. You see? And so it's mercurial. It's always changing, you know, to one it's this way and to another it's that way. And there's something about it that struck me that this mild form of this virus, you know, all it has to do is remove your ability to to sense and feel anymore. But it's got you nonetheless. You've become an agent to pass along destruction and death to others, unwitting as you may be about it. Just because you lost your sensitivity, it doesn't seem bad at the moment. We don't want the salt to lose its savor, do we? To be worthless and good for nothing but to be thrown out. We don't want to become lukewarm and meaningless, no salience anymore, that we're dead to things and to that God would speak to us. We're dead to the needs around us. We're dead to the sin in our, our life in, in the wrong way, that we're inured to it. We're numb to it. We don't feel conviction. We don't feel faith. We don't feel inspiration. We don't feel compassion. We just don't feel that's that's the uh, the end stages of hypothermia. When your love has gone cold enough, you don't even feel cold anymore. And that's when you need the love of a brother to come along and, and recognize what's going on with you. Oh, just let me 
just let me lie down and sleep. I'm feeling fine. I'm just really, really, really tired and exhausted, and I just need a break. Y'all just leave me here. I'll be fine. No, brother. (laughs) Wake up. Wake up from that apathy, from that lack of feeling. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness to me. Let a brother speak a hard word to me to wake me up. Amen. To help me to feel again. Okay, it hurts. At least I'm feeling something, as the song says, instead of going through the motions with a form of godliness and no power. Ephesians 4. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles. I'm in verse 17, if you're following along. In the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, being a non-participant, it can be translated, in the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. There's a whole string of things here. He says the Gentiles are wandering in the futility of their mind because they don't understand, and they don't understand because they're not participating in the life of God. And they're not participating in the life of God because they're ignorant. And they're ignorant because their hearts are blind. So this is not an intellectual problem at its root, even though it manifests itself in futile thinking. You can be religious like the Greeks on on the Areopagus who do nothing but talk about religious things, but worship a God that they don't even know. Even though He's not far away from them, they don't feel after Him in hopes of finding Him. They don't seek Him, which is the very purpose for which we're made, Paul says there. Amen. They don't feel after God. They just think about Him and talk about Him. So here he's saying, if you draw back that connection, he's saying that it's the blindness of heart, the inability to feel, the callousness of our hearts that leads us into a place of futility, a place of cynicism, a place of doubt, a place of hardness. Who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. They're feeling something. They're giving themselves to some kind of feelings, and that's what happens inevitably. That numbness, you end up with some kind of hole, and you've got to fill it with something. So you start filling it up with the wrong things, things that cannot satisfy. Amen. The transient desires of the flesh that are the pleasures of sin for a season. Because your past feeling the riches that God would hold out to us that we could taste and see that the Lord is good. But you have not so learned in Christ if, indeed, you have heard Him. Amen. And been taught by Him. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. The word in Greek there, past feeling, is apatheo, apathy, without feeling. God, don't let our love grow cold. Amen. When the Lord puts a little opportunity in, in front of you to exercise that feeling, then you've got a chance to do something with that. You've got that one step sitting right in front of you. What are you going to do with it? Well, you know how calluses are built, don't you? It's by things that rub but never penetrate, by constant rubbing but not doing anything about it, never being available enough to God that you avail yourself of the moment. Amen, that you you make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. So instead we grow calloused because here's an opportunity. Something stirs in your heart, all you got to do is nothing, and that stirring will be a little smaller the next time. The same is true in reverse. The writer of Hebrews tells us about those who come to maturity because they've had their senses exercised by reason of use to discern between good and evil. The more you use it, the more you respond to that and become sensitive to God, the greater that sensitivity grows until it becomes a way of life. You say, this is what I live for. Amen. 
I'm not alienated from the life in God. I'm participating in the body here. I'm part of the hands and the feet that are discerning the needs around me, that are moved with compassion as Jesus was when he saw the multitudes that were as sheep without a shepherd, that it does something to me. Amen. It says, what can I do? What can I give? How can I help? God is always looking for the people who are going to give that kind of sacrifice. And if we're too self-centered, how's this going to work for me? Many times we're blind to the opportunities that would lie before us. I was thinking earlier today that it's been said that the way of a believer is not one of innovation, but of discovery. What that means is that there's kind of two ways you can go through your life. Even if you claim to be a believer, which I believe everybody here would, you can go through your life feeling like, I need to find what makes me happy, and I need to find what I want to do with my life, and I need to, um, I need to figure out where I want to be and what I want to do and what I want to be and how I want to be and who I want to be with and, and such so that I can lead a, a meaningful, fulfilled life. And then there's another perspective that says, where was I when the Lord laid out the foundations of the world? He knew me in my mother's womb. There's not a step laid out before me that he didn't already know, to quote the Psalms. There is a destiny prepared for me that I didn't, that is not of my own choosing, and my task is to reach out to God and find it, to find what he has prepared for me before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians 1. There is already a plan. Jesus said to the disciples in John 15, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I ordained you. I appointed you to bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain. There is a destiny prepared for every single one of us. Yes, we're on a journey, but is it to discover ourselves? (laughs) Is it to figure out how this is all supposed to happen and according to what we understand? Or is it to be, even if we're buried in Ur, to have some capacity, some sensitivity of the heart that could hear a voice calling to us saying, Abraham, get up and leave and go to the land that I will show you. You're not going to see every step at once. You're going to just see the step in front of you. Can you hear that voice? How many other people were in Ur? that the Lord called their name and said, would you get up and just, and just leave and go to the place that I will show you? How many other people were there? Well, we don't know because they didn't make history. It was the one who was able to hear. Everybody looked at him like, you're crazy. He said, I'm sorry, I'm smelling lasagna in the kitchen. <laughs> there's, there's somewhere else. I'm, I, don't, I don't care if you don't hear it. I hear it. Amen. God has put some capacity in my soul, and I'm trying to cultivate it. I say, well, you don't even know where you're going. I, I know I don't, but I know the voice that I'm hearing, and I've got a faith that is never going to lead me wrong. Amen. This next mountain, like Brother Eric said, may look a little different. I may not have recognized this one before, but I know the ones that are behind me, and, and this got a familiar feeling to it. Remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus? When Jesus appeared to them in some other form, you have to know that he was trying to test them in some kind of way. When he appears with them and says, you know, what are you all talking about? And they said, are you you the only guy who doesn't know what's going on? Are you the stranger here in Jerusalem? You don't know the things that have happened here? What things? He wants to know their perspective on what happened. And they're, well, we thought he was going to be the one. I mean, it was incredible. He should have been there. It's over now, but... It was so amazing, and now it's over. It's dead. It's gone. There's no hope. And what does he say to him? He rebukes him. They think he's the one that doesn't understand what's going on. He's actually the only one that does understand what's going on. And he says to them, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the things that the Scriptures have said. 
And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he began to explain to them that it was necessary for the Christ to die, that he might rise again. Amen. And then what happens? Well, he goes along. It says he makes as if he would have gone on without them. But they reached out and constrained him and said, please, come a little closer. Come inside our house. I'm opening up the door. I'm going to take some initiative here to take a little step based upon what I'm already feeling. And when they took the step, what happened? Sensitivity came back. Their eyes were opened to discern what had been near to them all along. He's not far from any one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. And he's determined the exact boundaries and times of our habitations. Amen. So that we would reach out to him and feel after God if perhaps we just might find him. Your destiny. Amen. If you're here today to hear this voice, to hear this word, if you feel anything today, it's because God determined those boundaries. You're probably here because you already heard that voice at some point. I don't believe there's anybody sitting in this room other than the the young and ignorant children who have also been destined by God to be here. I don't think there's anyone else in this room who is here for any other reason than that they already heard some voice of God and responded to it and it brought you here. And now our task is to hear it again and go one more step. Even if we don't know where it goes from here, we got to move with the cloud. Amen. we got to move when the pillar of fire breaks camp and move. We get up and go because he already parted the waters before. Amen. It's a, it's a miracle that we can hear his voice today. Amen. And once their eyes were opened and Jesus disappeared from them and they said, didn't our hearts burn within us when he talked with us along the road and opened the scriptures to us? I knew I was feeling something. I could smell that sweet aroma. And it was life leading to life. Amen. It was faith leading to faith. Glory to glory. As we are being changed into the image of the Lord. As we are becoming vessels of the fragrance of God. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. I read this story this morning about Elijah. It says, The word of the Lord came to Elijah Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, He called to her again. Sometimes the Lord doesn't speak the next thing until we're going to do the first thing. Amen. We say, well, I think he may be telling me to do this, but it would be irresponsible of me, you know, to kind of set out not knowing where I'm going. So I'll just keep, you know, meditating a little more on this until things are clearer. But it kind of seems like that next word was never going to happen until she did the first one. Amen. And, and I don't know, but it says that he had commanded a widow to take care of Elijah. I don't believe that that widow was aware that this was the guy she had been commanded to care for. It doesn't give me that impression. I know that's reading into it. But it seems like there was something in her heart. There was a willingness to serve somebody beside herself. We were reading just in a recent meeting uh, in John 4 where Jesus did the same thing to the woman at the well. He's got everything that her soul ever longed for. And the first thing he says to her is, give me a drink. Have you ever thought that perhaps the key into that river of water springing up inside of your soul was to start giving drinks to others? He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you water that would have become in you a fountain springing up unto eternal life. She at first didn't realize it. 
Her eyes were blinded to who it was and the gift that God was holding out in front of her. As she opened her heart and told the truth and about that she had no husband and so forth, she began to perceive, uh, sir, you're a prophet. <laughs> and it brought her hope, really, because even though he perceived exactly what kind of person she was, he was still holding out this gift and this promise to her. What did she have to do? She had to go back and tell everybody, come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Amen. Hope has sprung up in my heart again. We're not here to just draw from this same old well over and over and over and work hard at it for the same little drink. There's an entirely new dynamic that this man is promising and holding out to us. So here he says to her, Elijah says to the widow, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her again and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. Has the Lord ever done that to you? He says, would you do this for me? And we say, oh, amen. Yes, sir. I think that's within reach. And, and you, you just start to go. And he's, oh, and by the way, while you're at it, do the impossible and bring me some bread, too. <laughs> now that I see you're willing, uh, let's up the stakes a little bit. And she has a response to that. She says, as Yahweh your God lives, I don't have any bread. I only have a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I'm here gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. I'm at the end of my rope. This is my last salute to a life that's treated me wrong. And you're going to ask me, to bring you some bread. And Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterward, make some for yourself and your son. For thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day that Yahweh sends rain on the earth. Do you feel the faith today to become a servant of love, as Brother Gustavo was talking to us about? To say, okay, Lord, I'm going to take you at your word that if I will bring the whole sacrifice into the temple, you're going to open the floodgates. It's going to be more than I thought. Amen. The joy, the grace, the peace, the purpose, the meaning in my life, it's going to be more than I can see from this little blind vantage point that I have now. But my heart burns enough within me that I know it's the Word of God. And when I hear that Word, I'm going to go do it. Yes, it's a sacrifice, but I'm not going to put self first. I'm going to put others first. I'm going to put love first, which is always thinking of others first. That's going to be the first thing in my life. Amen. And I'm going to trust God that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Amen. I want to read you one more thing. You know, everybody wants love. We talked in the beginning about love, that the love of most is going to grow cold. People are always looking for love, are we not? We want to feel loved. And we even want to love. And yet we feel the vulnerabilities of that. We feel the risk of it, don't we? And we feel like, what if I step out on this thin ice and it breaks underneath me? What if it's not quite as good as it appears? Amen. And there's something in us that we don't want to trust other people. We, we worry about getting too committed we worry about getting too involved. We worry about opening our hearts too far, lest they be broken, lest we be disappointed. And what that usually means is we have a little more trust in ourselves than we do anybody else. But when the reductions of life come in to do you the favor of helping you to stop trusting in yourself, then they put you in that wonderful, desperate place where you've got to believe in something.
Paul said in, in 2 Corinthians, he says, you know, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the trouble that we had in Asia. He said, we despaired of life itself. But he said, but we had this sentence of death in ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who has delivered us, is delivering us, and will deliver us. All of you helping through your prayers. It is a gift. Abraham, when he knew his body was as good as dead, did not waver in unbelief. But against all hope, in hope he believed. It's a gift from God when we go through the reductions that cause us to lose faith in the most important place to lose it. Right here. What I think. What I plan. How I perceive things. What I'm afraid other people are going to do to me. And we become a little more afraid of what we're going to do to ourselves and what we're going to do to other people. And it causes us to turn out. And therefore, we glory in our tribulations. Romans 5. We glory in our trials. We can rejoice in the things that afflict us, in the hurt, in the pain, in the waiting. We can look back and say, there was Jesus in that. All along, even when I didn't see it and I didn't know it, Jesus was there. If we haven't lost all sensitivity, someday we're going to see that. We're going to see it clearer than we ever saw it before, that Jesus was in all of it. And we're going to learn to rejoice in the trials, even in the betrayals of others. Instead of growing cynical and cold and hopeless, well, there they go again. I can't trust anybody. No, you can't. But there is one friend who will never let you down. And if you can hear his voice inside of other people, you can trust that. Amen. What else do we have to trust in this world? But God has given us a capacity that if we'll let it, our heart can burn within us. Even when it's a stranger speaking to us and we don't yet realize, oh, that's actually Jesus talking to me. And the reason I knew that it was is because that same feeling came up in my heart that I used to feel when he walked with us and when he was right here. I know that voice. It's not a stranger. And then we say, Lord, if it's you, tell me to get out of this boat. If I can just know that it's you, I'd do anything. Because my faith hasn't dried up. I may have failed God, but my faith hasn't failed me. Because my God hasn't failed me. Amen. I haven't given up hope. And so we learn to rejoice in our tribulations, knowing that our trials produce perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God is poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit that He has given us. Amen. You say... I don't want to be disappointed. One translation of the Bible translates Isaiah in the New Testament as the one who trusts in him will never be disappointed. Amen. Well, man, I sure have been disappointed. Maybe you didn't trust completely. I know men will disappoint us, but God will never disappoint us. All things are going to work together for the good in the end. For those who can still feel. For those who love God and are called according to His purpose and not seeking our own designs. Amen. Then all those things start working together for the good because here comes love. And the things that hurt us just make us more sensitive. They make us more empathetic, more compassionate, a better vessel in the hands of God to spread the fragrance of the pleasing sacrifice of God to all men. For those who have a nose to smell, they're going to know what it is. Thank you, Jesus. And we're only afraid to go there because there's still that little self-centered something 
that is afraid to give our life. He who seeks to save his life will lose it. But he who will lose his life for my sake, Jesus says, and for the gospel, will find it. So we pause on the precipice of this ironic dilemma that God holds before us. Can we make the great leap to believe that there's still a remnant out there, that there's still a purpose, that there's still joy and grace if we would do the hard but right thing? This is a quote from C.S. Lewis. There is no safe investment. He means that it's going to cost you something or it's not an investment. It's not a sacrifice. David said, I will not offer to God that which costs me nothing. It's not going to be the acceptable sacrifice that is a sweet aroma to God. There is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, we're all afraid of tragedy, the alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. Thank you, Jesus. What God has called us to is not safe. Amen. It's not safe to bake that cake for somebody else when you've got nothing left. Amen. There's got to be something in us that is willing to believe past this moment, past what we see, and say, oh, God, I'm not going to waver in unbelief. I'm going to judge him who called me as faithful. Amen. And I'm going to sacrifice myself, my fears, my plans, my image, I'm going to sacrifice myself on the altar of faith, believing that God is going to bless that offering and that love is going to become its own reward. Amen. That I'm going to find my life through loving, not just in being loved, but through loving and giving myself. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. That is the purpose of our life. We can't say, I've been burned too many times, so I hold my cards close now. There's got to be something in us that, against all hope, in hope believes. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Amen. These he will not despise. All we have to give is the whole thing. The acceptable, pleasing aroma to God is not a quantitative thing. It is a qualitative thing. Amen. It means that we got to give everything we have. If the heart is willing, then the gift is acceptable. And we want to focus on what we don't have and what we wish we had and all that. And God isn't asking us that. He's asking us, what do you have? Are you giving what you have? And if you're just the widow and all you got is two coins, if you'll throw them in, it'll be the greatest treasure in that coffer. Amen. But if you've got lots and you're measuring it out, Teaspoon by teaspoon, I'll try this and see how it goes. It doesn't matter how much you think you have. What you have will be taken away. It's a matter of whether we use what we have. Amen. Because the Lord sees all the rest, and he's just asking us to give the whole thing. No back doors, no safety boats, no plan B. Amen. But all of your heart, all of your trust, all of your faith in him, 
Amen, God. If it's you, call me out of this boat. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I give myself away. I give myself away. I give myself away so you can use me. I give myself away. I give myself away. Lord, I give myself away so you can use me. Here I am, here I stand. God is moving on your heart today. Don't wait. Amen. Don't let the sensitivity pass you by. Thank you, Jesus. If he's pulling on your heart, amen, you don't have to come up here. You can if you want to. Amen. You can pray where you are. You can go to your brother, whatever you need to do. But we got to say, God, I'm bringing it. I'm giving it away today. All of the pain, all of the hurt, all of my confusion, all of my plans, I'm giving it away today. Amen. I'm placing it in your hands. I'm trusting that you can do something with this. That a broken spirit and a contrite heart are exactly what you need. Amen. And I want my life to mean something. So I'm bringing it down to this altar. And I'm making myself a living sacrifice for you. All my plans. Amen. All my dreams. It doesn't matter. Amen. This is a time to give. Amen to receive but to give Amen I give myself away I give